Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 14. I say let's open God's Word now, but the Word has been opened for us the entire time we've been worshiping the Lord. Thank you, Dan, for leading us in that devotion and for Cody and the praise team for leading us in song. We're going to continue our study in the book of the Revelation, which has been proven to me to be not only a challenging and mysterious book, but a wonderful and beautiful book replaying and retelling for us the stories that we've learned uh, so far from Christ and His apostles and throughout the New Testament, and today is no exception. We're going to be reminded of some things that we should already know about this harvest that, that is coming for us, and we were, we were even reading a little bit of that when uh, Dan read for us from in First Peter that we are to set our hope fully upon the grace of Christ that is going to be revealed to us in His coming. Well, in this passage, we're going to learn about the grace or be reminded of the grace that's going to be revealed to those who believe at the coming of Christ. So if you've had time to find your way to Revelation 14, would you look with me at verse 14, and then I'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray together. John, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the opportunity to gather to not only sing Your Word, but to hear Your Word preached and taught to respond to the commands of Christ that we have in your word to eat the bread and drink the cup and to remember the Lord Jesus when we do so. And now we've come to this time in our worship where we are going to focus upon your word, seeking to understand what you have said to your people today. And there is much for us to learn and remember in this passage. And so, Father, would you allow your spirit to come and to open our eyes and our hearts and our hands so that we can see and believe and to respond to the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. You know, throughout human history, the time of harvest has been a time of immense celebration. 
Because when the harvest comes in, it means the end of long labors, and it, it has the comfort of knowing that your family will be fed. When everything is said and done, when the work is over and the grain is secure, the farmer can rest, the farmer can enjoy the fruit of his labor. But we also know that on occasion, when the harvest time doesn't bring celebration but brings disappointment, we know that the celebration is cut short because there is a fear of a difficult future that is ahead. Now, throughout the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that we see a focus upon the harvest, particularly the harvest of grain. And it comes as a blessing from the Lord. And in those years, in those seasons of life when there is a drought and the grain harvest is weak, it is a time of, of mourning. But the, the, the harvest is generally referred to as a time of blessing. And it's a time of blessing that comes with a responsibility for the people of God. Specifically, the 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 believer, the, the follower of Christ, the, the God-fearing man or woman is to receive the harvest and then to give back to the Lord part of the first fruits of that harvest. It's an offering of gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord. And then the, the people of God were even instructed not to glean everything, not to reap everything in their field, but to leave the fringes of their field open for the poor so that they too could celebrate the goodness of God and have the provision from the Lord. But the scriptures also talk about harvest, not just in the sense of actual grain being brought in from the fields, but of, of a harvest that is the harvest of men and women, what we would call the harvest of souls. And Jesus talked about the harvest in this way when he said this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. And he was talking about men and women. He was talking about the harvest of souls. He taught the disciples that the harvest was coming at the end of the age in Matthew 13 and that the reapers would be the angels that he would send. Jesus taught that whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And all of these references, which are familiar to all of us, they're helping us to, to understand that harvest has more than one connotation. Yes, we understand that there is a harvest of grain, but Jesus says there is a spiritual harvest coming where he will harvest the souls of men. And it points to the end of the age when Christ is going to return and that harvest takes place. Now here in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, is about that harvest at the end of the age. It is a, a picture of the returning of the Son of Man, along with a, a, a collection of angels who are going to take part in the reaping of the earth, which we are told in this text is ripe for harvest. And at first glance, as you read this, you may have come away thinking that, that this vision tells of one harvest and one judgment. But upon closer inspection, I believe that this passage is showing us, and it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament, that there's actually going to be two harvests that are going to occur at the end of the age, a harvest of grain and a harvest of ripened grapes. So my purpose in preaching this message to you this morning is for us to be able to identify the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? What does that language mean? And then 
I want to also help to prepare your hearts for the harvest that will take place at the end of the age, the harvest of souls. And to do this, we're going to look at three things this morning. First, the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? What is it pointing us to? And then we're going to look at the harvest, and then we're going to look at the vintage, which is the word we use to understand the collection of grapes at the end of that season. So those three things. Let's look first at the coming of the Son of Man. Look back at verse 14. John says, then I looked and behold. Now that's an indication of something. It's an indication that we've shifted from one vision to another vision. And I'll explain that in a minute. But he says, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So you have that mental image there, the mental image, the vision that John saw. Now, this is the sixth vision in this series of seven visions, and it starts off with a familiar image, the Son of Man coming on a cloud. Now, many of you automatically, you have in mind who that is and what this represents, and you're probably not too far off from what the Scriptures teach. John has already introduced us to Um, this individual known as the Son of Man all the way back in Revelation chapter 1. In speaking directly of Jesus Christ, John tells us in verse 7 of uh, Revelation 1, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen." So from the very beginning, we know who this is. Who is this one who's being revealed? Who is it that falls into that category of son of man? But just a few verses later, John makes it abundantly clear. He sees one who is like a son of man, the same language we see here in chapter 14. And this son of man is clothed with a long robe. He's walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. Do y'all remember that? Long time ago, we pre- I preached through that. He's walking through the midst of the golden lampstands, and when John sees him, the Bible tells us that John fell down at his feet as though he was dead, and then this individual, this one like a son of man, walks over to John, and he laid his right hand on John, saying, fear not, here's his identity, I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Now, who is this? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Sunday school answer here, right? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the Son of Man is. There's no debate over the identity of this individual in Revelation chapter 1, and there should be no debate over the identity of this individual in Revelation 14. This is a a reference to one like a Son of Man who is the Lord Jesus Christ. John is referring to Jesus here. And one of the reasons we know that is just because of all the symbolism and and the language. You may know this, you may remember this from your study in the New Testament, that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over and over. Almost a hundred different times, if you put all of the instances throughout the Gospels together, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. It was his preferred way to identify himself. But in addition to that, we have this white cloud situation. 
And that should bring some things to your mind as well. And when you put these two things together, it's abundantly clear who this individual is who's coming on the cloud. When Jesus was teaching his disciples about the end of days, this is from Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this. He says in verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And they would have understood immediately that he was talking about the coming of himself because he's been referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is what will happen at the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And those angels will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is Jesus preparing us for the end of days. When Jesus was on trial before the high priest, right before his death, he said to him, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. No mystery what's going on. When Jesus ascended, To the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1, and his disciples stood by. He was taken up in a cloud. And then on that particular glorious day, there were messengers from God. There were angels who were there, and the disciples were staring up into heaven, and they they were marveling at what they were seeing. And the angels told him, don't you worry, he's going to return in the same way that he left on a cloud. This vision from John here, this This is John describing the second coming of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Jesus, the Son of Man, coming on a cloud with a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. That's what this vision is all about. And that's what he's telling us about. It it mirrors what Jesus taught in Matthew 24 and so much of the rest of the New Testament. He is coming with a dual purpose. To gather his elect and to judge the world. He wears this golden crown to show that he possesses the authority of the king of heaven, and he holds a sharp sickle in his hand to show that he is prepared for a harvest. And this is a a strange thing, this idea of Jesus wielding a sickle. A sickle is a sharp tool that's it's like a scythe. You, you, you probably have some image of that. We don't use those anymore. We have tractors and lawn mowers. But when you needed to cut grain back in the day, you would use this kind of a tool. It was a, a, a metal tool that had a, a wooden handle and, and it had a curved blade. And one edge of that blade would have been razor sharp. And it was the chief tool that was used in the harvesting of grain. Perhaps you're familiar with an image that may bring this to mind. You, have you, are, are you familiar with the image of the personification of death as this tall, dark figure hooded and cloaked with his skeletal body-like and, and, and he's holding in his hand a, a sickle, a scythe. And he's referred to as death and, and he doesn't hold that sickle so that he can cut grain. We know what the image is representing. He's, he's coming to harvest the souls of men. So what our, our modern mythology is doing is taking truth from Scripture and applying it forward. Now Jesus is not 
in a dark cloak. He's on a white cloud. And the white cloud represents the fact that he is holy and he is righteous. But the fact that he's holding this sickle lets us know that he is coming to judge. He is coming to initiate the harvest at the end of the age. This vision, no mistake about it, this vision is a vision of the second coming of Christ. Now, here's a thought that I had as I was studying and thinking about this this week. John has seen the Lord Jesus in so many different instances. He's seen him, you know, in, in his element. He's seen him teaching. He's seen him out on the, a boat, out in the, the, the sea. He's seen him in, in a fishing environment. But I, I don't know from Scripture that John would have ever seen Jesus in a, in a farming environment. I mean, Jesus was a carpenter. So if, if Jesus is ever going to have a tool in his hand, it, it might be a carpenter's tool, not a, not a farmer's tool. So why is he holding this particular tool? A tool that's only used for harvesting grain. Why? Well, we get an answer in verses 15 and 16. Now we've identified the, the one who is like the Son of Man. Now let's look at the harvest. Look at the harvest. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So let's answer a question. Why, if this is Jesus, why would Jesus need to be told by a messenger, by an angel from the Lord, that the harvest is ready? Well, you may remember, Jesus actually told his disciples this in Matthew 24, 36, as he was teaching on the end of the age and what it would look like. He said this, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. No one knows when this day is coming. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Do y'all remember that passage? Now, there are some who argue that since Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, that he obviously knows when the end will come. And yet, this verse of Scripture, this passage, helps us to understand that that simply isn't true. This messenger that comes out of heaven, he comes from the right hand of the Father. He comes from the presence of the Father, and he comes with a message for the Son. And the message for the Son is that the hour has finally come to reap. Now go and do the work that the Father has given you to do. And that's what Jesus does. This long-awaited event has finally come. The message comes from the Father, who's the only one who knows, and it comes to the Son, and it comes in this form. Here's what he says in verse 16. This is the angel speaking to the Lord. He, or in verse 15, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, and now Jesus does what he has been waiting to do. So he who sat on a cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, John may have been surprised when he saw a sickle in Jesus' hand. Maybe not. But he would not have missed what this all represented. He would not have missed the significance of this language. Whether he was surprised about it or not, he wouldn't have misunderstood it. The angel tells the Lord, put in your sickle and reap, for the harvest is fully ripe. Now, you don't see this in our English translations, but if you were to look at the, the Greek New Testament, you would see something. You would see that the word reap and the word harvest have the same root word, the same exact root word. They, they, they help us to understand that what's happening here is not just the harvesting of a particular thing. It's specifically the harvesting of grain. This is the language that's used for the harvesting of 
grain. They both refer to the cutting of ripe grain. And that word at the end, when it says that, that it's ready, that it's ripe, that's referring to grain. And grain is ready to be harvested when it's dry. You may know that. We, we, there's a lot of farmers around here that, uh, that sow wheat, winter wheat. And you see it when it grows, and it's beautiful, and it's green, and it's all out there, but it's, it's not ready to harvest until it, until it dries out, and it turns like this golden color. Well, the particular language here that's being used is that there is a harvest that needs to come. Jesus is supposed to reap that harvest because the grain is fully ripe. But then at the last half of this passage, it starts talking not about grain, but it starts talking about grapes. And grapes are not harvested when, when they're golden. Grapes are harvested when they get soft, when they, when they soften up and the, the fruit becomes ripe and ready to harvest. So what I understand when I look at this passage is that the language helps us understand there's going to be a harvest of grain that happens, and it's going to be Jesus himself who swings the sickle there. And then there's going to be a harvest of grapes. There's going to be a harvest of vineyard. And that's going to happen when these angels come. And so whether we see it or not, we need to understand that these are two separate harvests. Or you could say it like this. There are two aspects to this one harvest. And this is not new to just me explaining this. We see this all over the scriptures. In Joel chapter 3, all the way back in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel talks about the twofold harvest in this way. He says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. It's the same language. He's talking about harvesting grain. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Then he says this, go in and tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for the their evil is great. Now, Joel is using the same connotation. He's not talking about an actual harvest of grain. He's talking about the harvest of the souls of men. But he puts it into two categories, the harvest of grain and the harvest of a vineyard. Now, how are we to make sense of this? Do we have any other inclination from New Testament teaching about two aspects of one harvest? Well, absolutely we do. There are several passages that help us to make sense out of this. In Luke chapter 3, what, what we read earlier in our time of leading up to confession, we, we learned about the ministry of John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist um, recommends Jesus and he announces the coming of Jesus, he does it in this way. He says, he who is mightier than I is coming and his sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And John says that because he's baptizing in water. He's like, this, the one that's coming is far greater than me. And then he gives this image of this coming one in a harvest sense. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This twofold understanding, this two-stage understanding of harvest. One is to deal with the wheat, the other is to deal with the chaff. The wheat will be gathered in, the chaff will be burned. In Matthew chapter 13, the Lord was asked to explain one of his parables. And it was the parable of the weeds. And you might remember this parable. It, it was a parable where he, he talks about um, one going out to sow good seed in the field. And, and he sowed that seed and it began to grow. And then another one came in the middle of the night and he was an enemy and he sowed bad seed in the field. Do you remember that, that parable? 
And Jesus is explaining that particular parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and this is his explanation. He says, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Notice the parallelism between these two visions. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you know what they do when they harvest the grain back in this day? And they they separate the, the weeds over there and they burn them and then they bundle the grain up. And remember, it's like gold because it's come fully ripe and it stands out in the field and it shows that the harvest is plentiful. That's what Jesus is picturing there in Matthew 13. And what he's helping us understand is that when the end of days comes, when the the day of the wrath of God is revealed, it will result in two-stage harvest. One for the people of God and one for the wicked. That's what we're seeing here in Revelation 14. This two-fold harvest represents the teaching of the New Testament. At the end of the age, all of humanity, both the living and the dead, will be raised and judged. Mankind will be sorted out once and for all, either sheep or goats, wheat or tares, believers or unbelievers. And we know this because we know our New Testament, hopefully. And that's what this vision in Revelation 4 is helping us understand. And what you need to understand is that when that day comes, we don't know the day nor the hour when it will come, but when that day comes, every single man or woman is going to be made to give an account of his life. The Bible makes it very clear. Each of us will reap what we have sown. Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says this, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here in Revelation 14, we are seeing a vision of the second coming of Christ and the twofold harvest that follows. The grain harvest represents the souls of believers, and it is Jesus who gathers us in. But in the second half of this vision, it tells the other side of the harvest. It tells us of the vintage. And let's look at that. Look at verse 17 with me. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for the grapes are ripe. Now, just like the the language of the first part of this is is declaring to us a a harvest of grain, this language is very similar. It's all declaring a, a gathering in of the vintage. And this helps us understand something of what Jesus already said, that the reapers are going to be the angels, the individuals that the Father has sent to help the Son in this harvest of the earth are angels, are messengers from God. One comes from the temple, 
The other one comes from the temple in heaven, which, by the way, they're not talking about two different temples. They're talking about the same temple, but the language is a little more specific with the second one. And the third angel comes from the altar. The temple and the altar. The first angel announces that the harvest is ripe and gives the Son of Man the go-ahead to reap the earth. The second angel has his own sickle. And then the third comes from the altar and has authority over the fire. Surely you're all thinking, please explain that to me. What is that about? What are we to make of these three angels? All three of them come from the presence of the Father. All three of them come from the altar or, or the temple, right? And, and the language is really specific, and it helps us to understand their purpose. We have the temple, the altar, and the fire, Now, how do we put all of those three things together to understand the purpose and importance of these three angels? Now, the Old Testament teaches us what the temple represents, right? The temple represents, after the fall, the temple represents that unique place upon earth where God dwells. And it's also the only place where God and man can come back into, where man can come back into the presence of God. It's a, it's a picture of what the old garden of Eden used to be like, because there's, there's trees in the temple, and there are animals in the temple, and there are angels in the temple, and God dwells there, and man has to come back into the presence of God, but, God, but man has to come back through the presence, or through the, the offering of a sacrifice, the blood of atonement. And that's where this all happens in the temple. The altar is the place where the sacrifice of laid is laid, and the fire is that, that which consumes the sacrifice. So we've got the temple, and we've got the altar, and we've got this fire. Now, I tried in my own language to make it make sense, but as I was reading and studying, Joel Beakey did a much better job than I could. So I'm going to read to you what Joel Beakey has to say about this. And I, I think it was profoundly helpful for me. Hopefully it will be for you. He says this, The message here is this, The judgment fire over which these angels have charge and which is to reign upon the earth is the same fire that fell at Calvary upon the altar and upon the sacrificial lamb. Let that sink in for a minute. The same fire that's going to rain upon the earth is the fire that fell at Calvary upon the altar and upon the sacrificial lamb. And here is the simple message. If you will not have the lamb, then you must bear the fire yourself. There is no sin that will go unpunished. No sin. Either the Lamb of God took your sin upon Himself when He died upon the tree, or you will bear the judgment of your sin in eternity. And that's the picture that we have here. If you, rejecting the Spirit's willingly offered grace, I'm reading from Beaky again. If you, rejecting the Spirit's willingly offered grace, if you will not come and confess your sins and, and lay your hands upon the head of the Lamb at Calvary, trusting in the crucified Savior to be your substitute and bear your wrath, if you won't have the Lamb, Jesus Christ, then you must bear the wrath of God yourself. That is the message here. There are two places where God can deal with the problem of your sin. He can deal with the problem of your sin at Calvary in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, or He will deal with your sin in hell. If you will not come to Calvary, 
Beaky says, and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you must bear the consequences of your sin yourself. And that's the picture here. And that's the warning as well. That is what this vision portrays. It portrays a time when God's grace is no longer being extended. When the common grace that all men in this world enjoy, when that too will be rescinded. It portrays a time when the hour of God's judgment will fall and it will fall upon those who have refused the forgiveness offered through Jesus Christ. When the Lord will send out his angels to swing their sickle across the earth and the winepress of God's wrath will be unleashed. And the language is intended to be fearsome. Listen, look at the language. Look back at verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now this is not, you may think it is, but it is not the first time that we see the, this, this picture of God's judgment throughout Scripture. Isaiah actually prophesied about this some 600 years before the New Testament and the coming of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 63, uh, there's a, the, the messenger is, is talking to the Lord and he says, Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like him who treads the winepress? I mean, the, the mystery is, is, is easy to understand. When, when you crush grapes in a wine press, it, the juice that comes out is red and it symbolizes blood. Wine in the Old Testament, as it is involved in the sacrificial system, is a symbol of blood. It's a picture of atonement. And there's no question about that when it comes to sacrifice of forgiveness. But when it comes to the day of judgment, that same picture is being used. And here's what God says. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. It is the winepress of the wrath of God And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Brothers and sisters, there's no mystery to this. We might be uncomfortable with the reality of God's judgment and wrath that is coming, but the scriptures are very clear that the judge of all the earth will bring about his justice, his divine justice upon sin, and it will come at a day that we now know as a day in the future. This picture, both from Isaiah 63 and the teachings of Christ and in Revelation 14, it foretells the day of God's vengeance, the day when God's wrath is finally revealed from heaven against all the sin of mankind. This is what the Bible refers to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this is now the third time that we have seen it portrayed in the Revelation. Okay, so some of you are new. You just jumped in and we're so thankful that you've come. Um, we've been studying the Revelation for about 40 weeks now. And, and the way that I understand the Revelation and the way that I've been teaching the Revelation is that we see it as a series of seven different cycles of visions. 
And each of those cycles of visions from the, the first letters that Jesus wrote to the church onto the picture of heaven, onto the, the seals, and then the trumpets, and now we're in this, this series of visions, every one of them are talking about the church age, the time of Christ's first coming and, and the time of Christ's second coming. And that what that means is that we're seeing the same thing play out over and over. And we, we, we know that because of how parallel those visions are. Now, let me just point out where we've seen this particular day come in the visions we've already looked at. We saw the sixth seal opened. Y'all remember that? Way back in the day, we saw the sixth seal was opened. And when the sixth seal was opened, we saw that a great earthquake shook the world, that unbelievers called out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, I made the argument back then, and I'm making the argument now, that that is a reference to the second coming of Christ, when Christ is revealed and his wrath is unleashed. That was all the way back when we learned about the sixth seal, when the sixth trumpet was blown. A voice from heaven ordered the release of the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. And when they were released, they went out to kill a third of mankind. That was another instance and picture of the wrath of God being unleashed. Because in that series of visions, in that cycle, we had come again to the sixth element. And the sixth element is the day of the release of God's wrath. Here we are in the sixth vision not a mistake, the sixth vision in this cycle, and we see the Son of Man coming on the cloud, just like he was told us he would, and the angels of God are told that the hour has come to reap the world, and the winepress of God's wrath is filled, and the blood of the slain will flow in unimaginable proportions. And oh, guess what? When we get to the bowls of wrath, we're going to see this same pattern happen again. And every one of these cycles, the, the intensity of the wrath of God and the intensity of the joy of believers who are rescued out of the world, that intensity grows until in Revelation 19, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the great white war horse and he himself treads down the unbelievers. That's what we're doing as we see this revelation unfold. So we're going to see this picture again, just like we've already seen it several times. But what do we see here? What do we see here? We see the wrath of God and the destruction of the wicked being portrayed for us in unimaginable imagery. What does that imagery mean? What do these numbers mean? What does it mean that there's going to be blood the depth of a horse's bridle? The number 1600 is a square of 40. And no matter how you arrive at this number, whether four times four multiplied by 10 times 10 or some other way, the numbers that are involved here are the numbers four and the number 10. And for those of you who've been with us during this study, you know that this is no mystery in terms of the fact that numerology plays a significant role in our understanding of the revelation as it unfolds. Four is the number that represents the whole of the earth. And we see that language in Scripture. We also use that language today when we talk about the four corners of the world or the four points of the compass. We're talking about north, south, east, and west. When we see the number four, it represents the whole of the earth. When we see the number 10, that number 10 represents completion. You put this together, and here's what we see. We see a picture of the whole earth coming under judgment, and it will be the completion of that judgment. 
This is not a picture, I don't believe, of a bloody battle in Palestine or of Armageddon like some might believe. Rather, this is symbolic representation of God's judgment encircling the whole earth. This is the full and final and complete judgment of the world. And the imagery is harsh. 1,600 furlongs contain the lifeblood of the whole world. That is the picture. This vision shows us three things. The whole vision in its totality. It shows us three things. The second coming of Christ on a cloud from heaven, the gathering in of God's elect, and the unleashing of judgment upon unbelieving humanity. In this vision, there, are, there is an exciting yet terrifying message for us to heed. The day of the Lord's judgment is coming. The time for Christ's return is imminent. And when He comes, the time for men and women to reap what they have sown will be upon us. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Three things that I would encourage you to do in response to this. Number one, accept the truth of God's coming judgment. Accept the truth of this passage. There are many that claim to be Christians. There are many who claim to be pastors and theologians. There are many who want to take the whole concept of God's judgment and wrath and set it aside as something that we've grown beyond. And yet, the Scriptures make abundantly clear, the Lord Jesus Christ makes it abundantly clear that the coming day of judgment is imminent. And he tells not only his disciples to be prepared for that, but he tells the world so that they can be warned. Brothers and sisters, maybe you are uncomfortable about this. Maybe you're not. But we need to accept the truth of God's coming judgment. The harvest of the earth will consist of two parts. The rescue for those who put their trust in Christ and the destruction of those who do not. And while this teaching, like I said, might be controversial, it is nevertheless true. We're not going to understand God and His purposes, purposes in the world unless we understand that He is coming as the divine judge who will judge the living and the dead. So accept the truth of God's coming judgment. Number two, take comfort in Christ's return. Take comfort. If you're a believer in Christ, you should take comfort in Christ's return. I'm going to go back to a passage that that Dan read for us earlier, and it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look, we are those who are we're saints of God. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint, not because of your works, but by the grace of God. And we live today sustained by the grace of God, but there is more grace coming and it's going to come to us at the day when Christ is revealed. And so this picture that we see in Revelation 14 is a day that we can long for. We can set our hope fully on that because on that day, we won't face the judgment of our sin. It's already been paid by Christ on the cross. No, we're going to receive an abundance of grace on that day when we are gathered in. And that should comfort you, brother or sister. It is comforting to know that before the judgment of God falls on the wicked, He will gather in His people first. And don't just take my word for it. Take the word of Scripture. 
the Apostle Paul said this to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that that's not everything that's going to happen on that day, but that's the message for us as believers, that we're going to be gathered up to be with the Lord. If you're a believer in Christ, you will not endure the wrath of God on that day, but you will be redeemed when the Lord comes. We face trials and we face tribulations and we face persecutions in this life, but when the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends, it will be well with our souls and he will gather us up like ripe grain and we will always be with the Lord. So take comfort in Christ's return. And then lastly, heed the warning of Scripture and repent. Earlier this week, I spoke with a dear friend of mine, Josh Wagner, we were talking about ministry and he was talking about a particular individual he'd been ministering to and he'd been giving him the gospel and, and preaching the word and helping him in all these different ways. And it, we were wondering whether or not this individual would actually heed the commands and heed the warnings and actually embrace Christ or not. And Josh reminded me of Jeremiah 6. And I'm sure you probably haven't thought about Jeremiah 6 in a while. So let me tell you what it says. It says this, thus says the Lord. This is the the invitation of God. He says to his people, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And there you will find rest for your souls. Friend, if you're here, you don't know Christ When I've talked about the grace of God, the Bible would help us understand that everything we have, even the breath in our lungs, is a gift from our Creator. And we don't deserve any of it. And what God does for us, not only giving us the common grace that we live under, but He is extending to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the joyous life that we can have here on earth. And He's inviting us into it. He says, stand and look. Here are the ancient ways. Here is the good path. You will come here and find rest for your souls. But in Jeremiah 6, the 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 people respond to to God and his offer and they say, we will not walk in it. And God responds and he says, I set a watchman over you and I said to you, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. And friend, here's a picture of God extending to you his grace and kindness. And so many of the men and women of our culture, the men and women of our world will say, we don't want what you're selling. We don't want what you're offering. We don't want your grace. We don't want to walk in your way. Don't let that be said of you. Take heed to the warning and repent. God's gracious love has been held out to the world. His kindness and His provision has been given to you. The abundance of His blessing has been poured out upon our culture, upon our country, and we deserve none of it. We deserve nothing from God but the wrath that we have earned. And yet God has been gracious and patient. He withholds His judgment from us. He has even provided through Christ the good way that we can walk in and find rest for our souls. But so many will simply reject it. 
They will not walk in the way of Christ. They will not turn from their self-salvation mission. They will not repent of their sin and put their hope fully in Christ. And this passage is a warning that the day of God's wrath is coming. And when that day comes, that grace will no longer be held out. If you have not turned from your sin and received Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so today. Repent of your sins and set your hope on Christ alone. He alone can save you from the wrath that is to come because He bore the wrath we deserved when He died on the cross. If you want to know more about that, you're interested in talking about that, I stand ready. And so do our other elders to stand ready. And people all in this congregation would stand ready to help you understand the gospel and your need of Christ. I pray that you would heed this warning today. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the abundance of grace that you have given to us through Christ. And thank you that you are gracious and kind enough to even warn us about what is to come so that we as your people can be prepared for it. And so those who do not know you can understand what they will face. Lord, I pray that today as your word has been taught and read and sung and and even displayed through the supper. Lord, I pray that you would work and accomplish your purpose to draw men to yourself, to open hearts so that they might receive your gospel and to remind us who are yours of this great gospel grace that you have given to us. And let us rejoice in it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.